Tony, it's always great to have a conversation with you. So thanks for joining us today. Great to be here. Now, Tony, we're here to talk more specifically about ESG and ESG initiatives. Um, ESG itself has been on quite a journey over the last few years. And the last time we spoke was a few years ago. So I wondered if you could just give us a bit of a summary of ESG was so in the limelight in, in 2020 and, and what you think the pandemic did to it and where we are today. So where we are today, I think, is a growing realization that ESG just isn't a one size fits all kind of term. Really, I think we would talk more about sustainable investment as an umbrella term. And within that, we see probably three approaches our clients taking. One is ESG integration, which probably mostly aligns with what you're sort of thinking of ESG and the journey that we're all on. And that's definitely about, you know, looking at companies, environmental, social and governance related risks, how they're managing those, how well they're managing those. But that's a little bit distinct from two other categories that we see many of our clients focusing on. One is the traditional exclusionary approaches, which is a little bit less about risk management and more about, you know, what are the things I don't want to invest in because they don't align with my preferences or beliefs, uh, maybe avoiding tobacco or weapons or fossil fuels. That's still very common uh, and is probably the longest running approach in this sustainable investment kind of area. And then the third is where we're seeing a lot of innovation is climate related and green focused investing. So kind of that E and ESG, mm. you know, that's driven often by a lot of our institutional investors that are focused on, you know, navigating the transition to a low carbon economy. What does that mean for their portfolios? And, you know, how can they as a universal owner often, uh, you know, help deliver returns that reflect their beliefs around the low carbon transition? So you mentioned there about um, a higher demand for those people who are looking to invest as, as the world is moving towards this greener economy. How are you looking to re-engineer indices to sort of give more weight towards those companies who are embracing that transition? Well, it sort of has to happen in the context of what the index is originally designed for. So, mm -hmm. you know, many times these investors, usually large asset owners, are using the indexes as an allocation tool to core equity or uh, fixed income allocations. So there's an existing pool of capital already tracking the traditional benchmark index. Now, the re-engineering has to come in within the constraints of not totally you know, disrupting the existing allocation model risk return profile of that index. So for example, if we look at a uh, US equity index like the Russell 1000, and we work with some you know, large asset owner clients that have organizational beliefs and objectives around the transition to a low carbon economy. How would we help them re-engineer that Russell 1000 allocation to reflect the low carbon transition? So one thing we've done there is partnered with an organization called the Transition Pathway Initiative or TPI, which is an asset owner led group that's trying to focus on this very question. They're doing it through data, through transparency, uh, and through what I would describe as kind of an evolving framework of approaches. This is not something that we have a clear capital T truth answer to right now. We need a framework that can evolve. We need data sets that will be able to be applied in a way that can be dialed up or dialed down depending on your beliefs, your allocation, your geographic exposure, your risk appetite. So in that way, we can maintain a broad market benchmark exposure, but in effect, reweighting towards companies that are better positioned for the low carbon transition and away from those that aren't. So the last time we spoke, um, we were talking about some of the hurdles that, um, that we all face in terms of actually deciding the level of ESG that a corporation has. Transparency and disclosures were, were issues. Is that getting better? And is that helping people like you and others come up with a methodology and a, and a benchmark, as you say? Definitely getting better. Still a long way to go. Uh, so disclosure and data is, you know, kind of the raw material that feeds into any of this analysis. Yeah. And oftentimes, you know, the bulk of that is coming from the corporate entities themselves, right? Mm -hmm. So they're describing to the market, 
the issues that they have and how they're managing them. That often comes in a narrative-based, qualitative set of information. It's non-uniform in the way it's disclosed, how it's disclosed, who it's disclosed by. But there are some positive signs, uh, three that I would think of. One, the EU in particular has focused on a, a corporate disclosure regime that is still in draft form, uh, mm -hmm. but has the potential to be very stringent. Uh, the draft form has about 82 different indicators, things like greenhouse gas emissions, water, uh, gender pay gap, also looking at things like third-party auditing, and crucially, the potential to impact non-EU companies as well, depending on your sort of scale of operations or size in the EU. So yeah. that could kind of set a global standard. Again, don't have the final rules just yet. In the U.S., the SEC is uh, still to finalize their proposal on a climate risk disclosure. Now, that's very specific to climate, as the name would imply, yeah. um, and a lot of anticipation on what that final rule will be. I know they had a record number of comments uh, during the proposal period, over 15,000 or right around there. So a huge amount of interest and, you know, kind of we're a little bit behind the expected timeline of when that might get announced. But I think that reflects, you know, uh, the importance that the SEC and investors put behind it. And the third is maybe most interesting, the International Sustainability Standards Board, set up by the IFRS to kind of be an equivalent to the International Accounting Standards Board, uh, which everyone kind of is used to working with in an investment context, but for su sustainability metrics. So um, the objective there being, you know, kind of a global template for disclosure, um, you know, with, with really the potential to kind of give the markets a much more consistent global basis of information. Uh, but, you know, some some years off, that work is really just kind of getting started. No matter what, the trends are all going in the right direction. Yeah. And, you know, this is good news for investors who want better raw information to feed into the things like ESG scores, ratings, indexes, yeah. or whatever analytics they're looking for. Forgive my uh, ignorance here, but I think we see real, I mean, from my perspective, I see real material progress being made in E and S, like in environmental and social in terms of gender pay gap and in inclusivity. Can you talk a little bit more about governance? It's sort of the part of the ESG, which I personally don't know as much about. And what are you looking for in terms of increased disclosure and transparency? And what trends do, should we be trying to see there? So one of the things that I think is most important in governance, there's the traditional boardroom governance that's kind yeah. of, you know, even predates, you know, the term ESG, right? I think what's probably most interesting for me is the governance of things like climate change or ESG in general. You know, so this is not how, like you can't have the CEO also being the chairman of the board. It's not things like that. Definitely that's part of it. Okay. But that's been around for a long time and it's right. pretty well understood. And there's, you know, <clears throat> there are some variations in sort of disclosure or even sort of practices uh, depending on, you know, kind of which region of the world you're looking at. But I think what we see a lot of clients focusing on is, I'll come back to climate change and the low carbon transition of kind of, all right, does management really have a handle on this? For You know, there's right. a corporate governance issue at its core in terms of how does a company, let's say a fossil fuel company, what's their plan? Does the board have a handle on it? Does management have a handle on it, both medium and long term? And are they well governed enough to execute on that plan? So it's mm. about, you know, kind of the governance of some of these questions that have ENS components, not just the traditional mm. governance in the boardroom. That's interesting. I was actually reading recently that insurance companies have come slightly under fire because I think from an ESG perspective, they there was taught that they shouldn't really be insuring some of these big oil projects and some fracking things. And it suddenly dawned on me that is an element of ESG that you should also be ESG responsible with who your clients are, not just your own company, but who you're selling to. So absolutely, that can be part of the consideration. I think, you know, we haven't seen much by way of, you know, distinguishing who should or shouldn't be insured. We tend to see more uh, interest and focus on, you know, maybe more controversial things like here in the U.S., fossil fuel investment, uh, guns certainly has been something, certainly right. for, for, for banks and financing. 
On the insurance side, I mean, I, I can see that sort of coming through as well, but probably the more interesting part of it is sort of how, what's their exposure to, you know, the physical risks of climate change. And then, you know, kind of from a banking perspective, you know, what's the loan book exposure to potential stranded assets in the fossil fuel space, mm. uh, which is something that investors are certainly interested in, but want more data on. So it comes back to that data disclosure point. It's the kind of thing that we would want to be able to account for. And in fact, we've worked with a number of uh, asset owner clients in the EU who wanted to, let's say, temper down the re-engineering implications that I described earlier for some of these low carbon indexes where you end up at an index level reweighting, you know, kind of away from energy and into things like tech and financials. Mm. Uh, but without mm. knowing in the financial sector what the bank balance sheets are in terms of, let's say, fossil fuel lending and, mm. and, and exposure, you may not be putting that reweighting in the right place. So without having the best data to precisely know how to reallocate that weight away from the energy stocks, we kind of said, let's just put an overall cap on how much more, you know, what's the active share we're going to put into banks mm. overall. You know, imperfect tool, but again, comes back to the point of evolution, being able to do this in stages as the right. data gets better. Tony, the, um, the CEO of Marlboro uh, recently said, I think I got this right, that they wanted to be considered an ESG stock. Now, first reaction is, uh, he must be dreaming. But um, that's, first of all, that's a great sign that you have someone like that saying that. But uh, to what extent can Marlboro try and squeeze itself in as an ESG stock? Probably comes back to the first point around, you know, kind of ESG as a term and what does it mean, this one size fits all kind of categorization. You know, an ESG stock will mean different things to different people. And if we want to step back and look at it from a, you know, the perspective of the corporate entity, any corporate entity, I would say there's two different ways you can think about ESG. One is how does that company manage from a financial materiality point of view, E, S, and G issues, the things that make a difference to their balance sheet in their, mm -hmm. in their opinion that have E, S, and G ties or components. But the second dimension is, you know, kind of their impact in the world, the company's impact in the world, either through their conduct, their day-to-day -day operations, or the use of their products, right? Mm -hmm. Can have positive or negative impacts in an ESG context, usually any S context in that realm. And yep. it's easy to imagine a company that, you know, could be good on one of those things, i.e. managing their ESG risks, but the impact out in the world of their products or their conduct could be negative. So what we try and do is, you know, try and see where investors are most interested. Where can we find some consensus? As I said, there's always a range of approaches, but there's actually one area where I think we have found some consensus and taken some recent action where we looked at the concept of baseline exclusions for, for all of our sustainable investment indexes, basically saying there's going to be a set of criteria, transparent rules-based data-driven criteria that we would apply across any sustainable investment index that says, these types of, you know, uh, companies that follow these criteria cannot be in the index. Right. Straight no. Exactly. Now, it's, you know, it's very nuanced. We're looking at, like, the value chain of different products and services. We're looking at revenue estimations and yeah. things like that. It's very targeted. So tobacco is on the list. Things like certain controversial weapons like landmines, cluster munitions, things like thermal coal were all on this list. We had a public consultation. We talked to clients. We got market feedback. And there was broad support. Uh, for using baseline exclusions. Mm -hmm. Most of our SI indexes, our sustainable investing index, already had this covered. Okay. Some did not. Yeah. You know, maybe if you had a clean energy index or something, that wouldn't necessarily have a tobacco screen a few years ago if we were building it. Now it will. Yeah. And we're going to roll that out across the board. So 
again, there's different approaches, but what we found, there's still appetite for this baseline exclusion concept, which would still reflect, you know, what we think to be a, again, a baseline of consensus around right. sustainable investing. As we move towards a more global, greener economy, lots of debate about how much energy we're going to need, where that energy is going to come from. Uh, we're going to need a lot more copper if we're going to go down that road. Um, to what extent is that a hurdle to this sort of transition or this more ESG kind of focus? I've definitely talked a lot about sort of the low carbon economy and the transition to that low carbon economy. And a lot of the clients that we're working with are approaching it from a risk management point of view. But there's right. an opportunity component to this as well that is very exciting for a lot of our clients. So we've done a lot of work trying to sort of measure, identify, classify the global green economy. Yeah. Um, and there's a really interesting story there. First of all, it's large and it's growing. So if we looked at the beginning of the year, we're talking about $8 trillion uh, and about 8% of global equity market cap. Okay. Okay. So it's substantial. Yeah. Uh, actually bigger than the oil and gas yeah. uh, super sector in our industrial taxonomy. Now, that means there's already exposure to companies that have what we would call green revenues. And what I mean there is we've developed a taxonomy that has sectors and subsectors and microsectors, just like traditional industrial classification systems, but are focused on green products and services. Mm. In that way, it's a little bit more granular. What we found, we've researched about 16,000 public companies. There's really only about 3,000 that have any green revenue whatsoever. Mm. Um, but with that information, you can start to really identify, classify, and accentuate exposure to those green companies or that green revenue in your broader mm. exposure. And the performance can also be measured as well, of course, mm. if you want to look at different things. Now, the interesting thing is that it's a diversified group. Everyone would think, of course, about windmills, solar panels. Yeah. Um, the energy transition is crucial, but it's not just about generation. It's about energy transmission. It's about energy efficiency technologies. Also about things like water, pollution control, agriculture, and food. So it's much broader than you might expect. And the performance has been very compelling. Now, 2022 was not a very strong year for a lot of green stocks, especially if you were comparing it to the fossil fuel industry. So if I look at our, I would say, most appropriate, broad, global benchmark for the green economy, it's called the FTSE Environmental Opportunities All Share. It's about 700 names. What they have in common is 20% of their revenue is from green products, as we okay. classify it. But it's a big group, large mid-cap, small-cap companies, emerging developed markets. Now, that was the worst performing sustainable investment index for FTSE Russell in 2022, about 6% worse than, than its benchmark. That came in the context uh, of substantial growth since the start of the pandemic and even yeah. before. Mm -hmm. And even that bad 2022 couldn't offset the previous high. So really over the last five years, that mm -hmm. broad benchmark still had 4% per annum excess mm -hmm. return compared you need to, to the be benchmark. Looking, giving, giving perspective to these. Exactly. And... You could actually look at 2022 and say, you know, what is this long-term trend around the transition to a low-carbon economy? You know, has that truly been disrupted and put onto a different path? I would argue no. Yeah. And you could even say that maybe some of the sort of valuations in that sector have now been adjusted back to more of a normal trajectory. And in fact, if we look at Q1 of 2023, that same index... The FTSE EO All Share, Environmental Opportunities All Share, was the best performing of all of our sustainable investment indexes. I just suddenly uh, started thinking about nuclear. Then, to what extent could nuclear ever be like an appropriate form of energy? Could it? Could it get? Could it be clean? So, when we classify green products and services, nuclear power is part of that classification structure. Hmm. Okay, 
Now, we've been doing this for a number of years in terms of running a green industrial taxonomy. Uh, and what we realized uh, some years ago is that we actually needed to iterate from the first version and we needed to provide a little bit more precision because there are these questions around nuclear power, things like rare earth metals as well, which are mm. crucial to delivering a lot of the like hardware type products that we need, but you know have environmental consequences in the way that they're brought out of the earth. And what we found is some clients were less comfortable in including those in their green portfolios or in our case, green indexes. So what we decided to do was in effect in our taxonomy, our, our green sectors and subsector definitions, we put all these groups into tiers of effectively dark green, green, and light green. And in that way, we can sort of say, all right, well, nuclear, that's in the light green category, mm. uh, all things considered. So then when we build an index, like the one I referenced before, the FTSE Environmental Opportunities All Share, we kind of don't include that light green category okay. when we're tallying up the 20% revenue threshold that we're looking for each company. Mm. But there's flexibility there because we've also worked with clients who are quite comfortable with nuclear and see that as a crucial technology as part of the low, low carbon transition. So, you know, you want flexibility, you want good robust data, and then a flexible framework to apply it. Well, Tony, it seems that this is all evolving uh, as the years go on and you're being able to get more and more granular and specific and have better, clearer and clearer benchmarks, which is helping. But um, it seems like everything is moving in the, in the right direction, at least. I hope so. Um, Tony, it's so, so great chatting with you. Thanks again for your time. Thanks, my pleasure.